everyone, I'm Charlotte. And I'm Dina. Welcome to The Grim Curriculum. We are back to a good, old-fashioned cannibal story, and an old-timey one at that. Today we are covering the story of Alfred Packer, a man with very little who in the winter of 1874 spent 57 days trapped in the San Juan Mountains with a group of fellow prospectors. He was the only one who would make it out alive. Those he encountered afterward found it suspicious that he appeared well-fed, healthy, and a whole lot richer. When questioned about the fate of his companions, he stated that they had abandoned him. Packer eventually admitted to eating the other men to survive. However, in the end, he gave multiple confessions and his inconsistent versions of the story have caused many to wonder what actually happened. Before we get any further into this, we do want to clarify something about his name. In some reports, he is Alfred, while in others, he is Alfred. He essentially went by both. There are some stories about how Alfred came about. One of them was the fact that a tattoo artist misspelled his name. He found it amusing and kept it. He wasn't the most literate guy around, and some folks think he may have just had trouble spelling his own name. Either way, everything from military documents to his tombstone call him Alfred. Many other reports simply refer to him as A. Packer or Al Packer. For the remainder of this series, we will simply refer to him as Packer. Not much is known about his earlier years. The majority of the information we were able to find comes directly from the U.S. Census. Alfred Griner Packer was born on January 21st, 1842 in Allahan County, Pennsylvania, which is close to Pittsburgh. We know he was one of three children born to James Packer and his wife Esther. His father was a cabinet maker who found work in Indiana and relocated his family to the area around the year 1850. Not much is known about his parents other than the fact that he didn't have a great relationship with his father. And I feel like most people in the early 1800s probably didn't have great relationships with their dads. It certainly seems to come across that way in a lot of stories, so you're probably on to something. During his late teen years, he moved to Minnesota, where he began working as a shoemaker. At the age of 20, he enlisted in the Union Army, where he saw battle during the Civil War. However, his Army career didn't last long. A mere eight months later, he was served an honorable discharge after an epilepsy diagnosis. He moved to Iowa, where he attempted to enlist in the Army again. This time, seven months went by before they removed him for the same reason. As far as we know, he didn't get up to a whole lot over the next nine years or so. He traveled west and worked various jobs, including a hunter, teamster, and a ranch hand. However, due to his epilepsy, he had trouble holding down a job. He was also incredibly difficult to get along with, which probably didn't help. Those who knew him said that he was hard to trust because he had a reputation as a thief and a pathological liar who argued with most people he spoke to. He eventually found work as a miner and worked in various locations until his employers fired him. He spent the majority of his time working around the Colorado area, but eventually settled in Utah. Man, this guy's been a little bit of all over the place. Right? He's a traveling man. We hear stories about how dangerous it is to work in a mine nowadays. I can only imagine the nightmare of a workplace this would have been in the 1800s. Around this time, there were two now-famous mining disasters. 
This along with the countless incidents that resulted in mass casualties over the years. This is along with the countless incidents that resulted in mass casualties over the years. These just happened around the time he was working in the industry. For starters, in 1862, 204 men and children were killed in what is now called the Hartley Colliery Disaster. A beam holding the pit's pumping engine broke and fell down the shaft, trapping everyone below. Despite a very valiant rescue effort, there were no survivors. 204 people, and kids for that matter, oh my god. That's the thing we gotta remember, there were like literal children working in these mines. In 1866, the worst mining disaster in England occurred when an explosion in a mine killed 361 people. This happened in the Oaks Mine in Yorkshire when something called fire damp was ignited, causing the mine to explode. And fire damp is what they call the many explosive gases that can be found in mines. Often it's methane. This was despite numerous workers striking for their safety for more than a decade prior. So yeah, this is not a fun gig. I do remember learning about the uh, accident that happened in the Yorkshire mine when I was in primary school in England, because I think in year six, when you learn about the Victorians, it's definitely mentioned because they talk a whole lot about how kids did work in these mines. I was really going to ask you that. I was wondering if that was something that was like common knowledge to you over there because 361 people, even back then, that is a huge loss. It's a humongous number. And a lot of my family is from Yorkshire and my granddad's family members, his dad especially, they were all miners. And it's kind of funny actually that my granddad didn't also end up becoming a miner because that was just kind of the thing that happened. It was like, well, your granddad was one, your dad was one, you were going to be one, your kids were probably going to be one as well. It was definitely a handed down through the generations trade. I'm glad he wasn't. Yeah, honestly. Back to Packer. So eventually, he heard about a massive amount of gold that had been found in the fields of Breckenridge in Colorado. Groups of men, usually not known to each other, would often band together and get to work searching for fortune. A man named Bob McGrew wanted to lead a large expedition and rallied for any willing man to go with him if they wanted to strike gold themselves and become rich. A crew of men ranging from a strong and healthy 19-year-old to a 58-year-old with severe arthritis banded together and off they went. Very Red Dead Redemption. <laughs> that, the entire time I was researching this, I could not stop thinking about Red Dead Redemption. I mean, it's pretty on the nose. One of the members of the original group, George Tracy, would later say that they first encountered Packer 25 miles near their starting point by Provo. At first, he didn't really seem like the kind of guy that they wanted on their team. For starters, he had no money or supplies with him. They considered him to be a burden. He also didn't come across to them as a very likable person, which is becoming a theme with Mr. Packer. It really is. Guy's got a reputation already. He told them that while he might not be the best equipped, he was just the guy they wanted with them. He knew the area very well. Not only that, he was an experienced guide and therefore he could ensure not only their safety, but their survival. It was November of 1873 when the men set out on their journey with their lives in his hands. 
But like we mentioned before, Packer was a massive liar, and this time was absolutely no different. Their trust in him would prove to be deadly. They left Provo, Utah, and set out to Breckenridge, Colorado. This would normally be a difficult journey, but that year, the winter had hit much harder than it had ever before. It didn't take long until they realized that not only did Packer have no clue what he was doing, he was a total pain in the ass to travel with. As we said before, he joined the group with essentially nothing. That didn't stop him from being greedy with what little rations they had. He contributed very little and spent most of his time begging the other men to share their supplies with him and arguing with anyone who he felt disrespected by in any way. Not only that, he was having seizures on a pretty regular basis, which meant they often had to stop and look after him. If he was a nicer guy, like, I feel like they probably wouldn't have had a huge problem with that, but he was eating all their foods, he's picking fights, and he's having seizures all the time. And all of this is while they're freezing their asses off and trudging through deep snow all day with little food and even less sleep. Yeah, not only are you useless, you're a total asshole. Like, there's really no reason to have you around. Even if, if at least he was funny. You know what I mean? Like, totally. Make the guys laugh. Everyone needs a personality hire from time to time. Exactly. But yeah, man is just mean. Party member Preston Nutter disliked him so much that he referred to Packer on many occasions as a whiny fraud. Since he had lied about his experience as a guide, they also got lost regularly. None of the men were familiar with the area, so essentially the best they could do was use a compass and head in the general direction they thought they should be going. Overall, the trip was already starting to be a bit of a nightmare. And then they started to run out of food. They didn't even really have the option of hunting because wild animals were scarce in the area. And even if they did, a lot of them had little experience when it came to hunting to begin with, let alone chasing around wild animals. They resorted to eating the feed they brought for their horses. They planned to kill and eat the horses themselves once that had run out. The men traveled for three long months before they arrived in what is now Montrose, Colorado. On January 21st, they found themselves at a Ute camp, which was led by Chief Ure. They were hesitant to approach the camp at first because they didn't know how they would be received. Lucky for them, Chief Ure had earned himself the nickname, the white man's friend. The chief sympathized with the men and offered for them to stay in his camp until spring so that they wouldn't have to continue traveling in the freezing cold. He urged them not to make their journey during the winter and explained that it was so dangerous that not even members of the Ute tribe themselves dared put their lives at risk by leaving the camp. He assured the men that they would be safe and comfortable at his camp and that he and his men would share everything they had with them. The men initially agreed that this was the best course of action. However, after a few weeks, they started to talk of leaving again. Not because there was anything wrong with the camp. Chief Ure and his men were incredibly hospitable. Despite the fact that it still hadn't stopped snowing, they ensured that everyone was well-fed, warm, and comfortable. But the men knew that they weren't the only ones after the Golden Breckenridge, and they didn't want to miss out on any of it. Half of the party decided that it would be best to stay behind with the wagons and horses and venture out in the spring. Eleven of them decided that they would leave despite the many warnings from the Ute people. 
Chief Urey tried to talk them out of it, but soon realized that his warnings were falling upon deaf ears. He did what he could, and he made sure that he sent them off with as much food and supplies as they could carry. The original plan was to head to the closest outpost, the Ute Camp, and then head to Breckenridge. They ran this by the chief, who agreed that this was by far the best course of action. Packer, argumentative as always, told them that he thought this was a terrible idea because it would be way faster to take what he considered a more direct route. He was still adamant that he knew the area well and that they should listen to him. Out of the 11 men, five of them listened to Chief Ure. Their journey was incredibly difficult. They followed the river like the tribe had suggested, but ran out of food before they reached their destination. They would have all likely died if they hadn't been found by a group of cowhands at the government cattle camp near Gunnison. The men took pity on them and allowed them to stay there until April when the weather improved. So this is the second time that they've been lucky enough to stumble upon a group of people willing to help them. These guys were not well equipped. As for the others, six men, including Packer, decided the direct route would be the way to go. Along with them were Shannon Wilson Bell, Frank Butcher Miller, George California Noon, and Israel Swan. Let's think about this for a second. If you were in this situation, would you listen to the people who are native to that land and know it well, or some dumb guy who showed up with nothing and has done absolutely nothing but lie to you and eat all of your food so far? Yeah, the uh, red flag radar for these guys is broken as hell because not only is he pissing them off constantly, but he's totally leading them astray and using their supplies and having seizures every five minutes, and they're still not willing to leave him behind. I'm honestly surprised they didn't at this point. I know, but you know what? They wanted that sweet, sweet gold. I guess so. Bob McGrew had a bad feeling about this from the start. He, like the chief, did what he could to best prepare Packer and the others for the 75-mile journey ahead of them. Chief Ure suggested that he take some horses and guide the men along the river until the conditions became too much for them to bear and then return back to safety. Packer and his men followed the river on their own until they came upon a path that led to the mountain. With Chief Ure's ominous warnings in the back of their minds, they looked up at the treacherous path ahead of them and figured, I can't be that bad. And for the record, they barely had enough food to last them the journey. They also had no snowshoes or heavy clothing and only a small amount of matches. As for weapons, they had two rifles, a hatchet, a few knives, a pistol, and a few rounds of ammo. What happened next is still a mystery to this day. Now, I gotta say, you know what this reminds me of? Hmm. Okay, you know, we covered Dyatlov's Pass. Yes. And when they were going up that mountain, they were like, oh, this mountain is called by the local people, literally the translation of don't go there. And we're gonna go there. You know what? We can't all be rocket scientists. We can't all be brain surgeons. That is very true. <laughs> Two months later, a group of men were eating breakfast at the Los Pinos Indian Agency, and the door was flung open. They all raised their heads in surprise, only to see an almost frozen man with rags tied to his feet. He carried with him a rifle, a knife, a coffee pot, and a small satchel. He began begging for food and a place to stay. 
I don't know why, but I find the idea of him having this like random coffee pot so fucking funny. Because again, Red Dead Redemption, you just have random stuff in your inventory. Absolutely. I just thought of him like that. Yeah, absolutely. (laughs) And to have a coffee pot, but not say like a water skin or even, you know, like a water bottle or something. It's kind of a random object to have. They all quickly shot up to help the man in need. They prepared him a warm beverage and a meal. He wolfed it down, and just as quickly as he had consumed the meal, he vomited it back up. He explained to the men that he threw up as a result of his state of near starvation. I'm sorry I keep interrupting this, but is it just me or were people shockingly nice to him? I always picture this era of time as every man for himself kind of period, but it seems like everyone that encountered him was willing to help him not die, even though he was doing a ton of shit that should have killed him. No kidding. I mean, talk about the wild, wild west and being every man for himself, but like you say, it seems like most people are very hospitable, so maybe we should have a more positive look on them. Maybe we should. (laughs) (laughs) After they fed him, they gave him a copious amount of whiskey, and that is when Packer started talking. He began his tale with the goings-on and Chief Ure's camp, saying that five men had hired him to take them to Breckenridge. According to him, things were going great until he developed a severe case of snow blindness. This caused the men to abandon him when he became too much of a burden. They gave him a rifle and just went about their way without him. He told of bravery and perseverance, a story in which he somehow survived despite barely having any ammunition and being completely blind. When they asked him how he kept from starving to death, he said he lived off of roots and rosebuds. And also he left out the fact that he was eating all of these people's food, arguing with everyone, and having a major health crisis like all day every day. But all right, Alfred Packer, all right. (laughs) The men listened to what he had to say, but from the start, it didn't make much sense to them. First of all, he appeared a little too plump for a man who was supposedly days away from starving to death. Second, he claimed to be broke, but days later, he spent about $100 from a series of different wallets to pay for his accommodation in the nearby Dolan Saloon. That's over $2,500 in today's money. As time went on, he frequented the saloon more and more, each time drinking to absolute excess and telling a different version of what had happened to him and his companions. Eventually, Preston Nutter, who had stayed behind at Chief Ure's camp, showed up at the saloon. He asked what had happened to the rest of the team, and Packer explained that things were going fine until his feet got, and I quote, wet and frozen. The members of his team had set up camp and left him there while they went out to look for food. Israel Swan left him his rifle for protection and swore they'd be back. As days went on, none of the men returned and Packer assumed that they had left him behind. So he decided he needed to leave the camp himself before he died of starvation. Preston took one look at Packer who again was shockingly plump considering what he had allegedly gone through. He also found it hard to believe that Swan would simply just give away his prized rifle to a man he seemed to absolutely loathe. The two began to argue and the fight resulted in Preston loudly exclaiming that Packer should be hanged for what he had done to the men, whatever that happened to be. He would later be reported as saying the following about Packer. He was sulky, obstinate and quarrelsome. He was a petty thief willing to take things that did not belong to him, whether of any value or not. Which, I mean, not untrue, as we've heard. 
And as all of this was happening, two of the men from the first party that had been rescued by the cowhands arrived at the Los Pinos Indian Agency where Packer was. Days later, they were joined by the three remaining men. One of them was Oliver D. Lautzenheiser. The men met up with General Charles Adams, who ran the agency, who had told them he had met with another man from their team, one Alfred Packer. General Adams recounted the tale that Packer had told them, and the men were immediately like, "Mm, no, that's not what happened. They explained to him that the men would never leave one of their own behind, even if it was the generally disliked Packer. Lautzenheiser told General Adams that the one thing he could count on was that Packer was not to be trusted. He was a liar, a thief, and overall just a suspicious as hell kind of guy. When he saw the rifle, he immediately recognized it as belonging to the oldest member of Packer's crew. General Adams showed him a pipe that Packer had left behind, which the men took one look at and stated that it didn't belong to Packer, but to Shannon Bell, a man who disliked him and would have never given him one of his belongings. Lautzenheiser convinced General Adams to send a team of men to capture and arrest Packer so that they could take him in for questioning. They came up with a plan to get him to come with them under the guise of having him help find the missing men who had allegedly abandoned him. They found him just in time. He was gathering his things and getting ready to leave. As this happened, they found Preston Nutter once again fighting with him and threatening to hang him himself. Packer agreed to go with General Adams rather than face the wrath of Preston Nutter. Before they took off, Preston had a chat with the arresting officer and told him what he believed had happened. He told him about all the money Packer had spent, even though he didn't have two pennies to rub together when he first joined the party months prior. He also spoke to him about the suspicious amount of belongings that Packer had stated the other men had allegedly given him. When he arrived back at the camp, Packer came face to face with not only General Adams, but with the five men from the original party who were not happy to see him. I feel like that would have been awkward as hell. I'm sure he peed his little drawers. (laughs) When asked about the money, Packer claimed he had received a loan from a man he had met before arriving at the camp. General Adams told him that if this was true, Packer wouldn't mind staying with them until he verified his claims, to which he agreed. General Adams gathered the five men as well as the arresting officer and created a small council so they could settle the matter. As all of this was happening, two Ute tribesmen burst into the building. They were holding pieces of what they called white man's meat that they had found on a hunt. Upon seeing this, Packer collapsed onto the ground and began crying and begging for mercy. Once he composed himself, he said he would give a full confession, but not before saying, It would not be the first time that people have been obliged to eat each other when they were hungry. (laughs) The justification, my guy. Uh, people have been cannibals before. (laughs) It happens. He then burst into tears, began crying again, and started telling them the story that would become one of the many confessions that he would tell over the course of decades. The agency clerk, a man named Herman Lauder, was the one who transcribed the first confession. We're going to be including the transcripts from both confessions in this episode a little bit later. The original story was that the men had left Chief Ure's camp with enough food and supplies to last the anticipated two-week journey. 
However, the rough terrain and cold made it so they went through their provisions a lot faster than anticipated. They then survived off roots and rosebuds. Every few days, they managed to hunt a rabbit as well. As the men got more desperate, Packer noticed that they were all kind of side-eyeing each other with a hungry look. One day, he left to gather firewood for the men. When he returned, he was shocked to find the men huddled around Israel Swan, who they had just killed with a hatchet. The four men then began to butcher the man, and Packer joined in. Not because he wanted to, because he had to. The men then divvied up the thousands of dollars that Swan had carried with him, and Packer took his rifle. The men ate as much of him as they could, then they packed up the rest and continued with their journey. Two days later, they were hungry again. They tried to find animals to hunt. When there were none to be found, they decided it was time to eat another one of the men. This time, they settled on Frank Miller for the sole reason that he was the heaviest of the men and therefore would be able to provide them with the most amount of meat. They killed him with a blow to the head as he was bent over picking up some firewood. He was then butchered and they feasted upon his flesh. Packer took his knife and then the men divided up Miller's share of Israel Swan's money. The weather continued to worsen, which only increased their desperation. Eventually, James Humphrey was chosen, with George Noon following him. The only men left were Packer and Shannon Bell. The two of them made a pact where they promised they wouldn't eat each other. They agreed that they would say the other men had died due to the harsh weather conditions. Things with the two of them were going fine at first, and they found some small animals to hunt, and it appeared that they would survive the terrible journey. One morning, according to Packer, Shannon Bell shot up from a deep sleep, screaming that he couldn't take it anymore. He grabbed his rifle and began to threaten Packer with it, saying that no matter what, one of them would have to be eaten. The two fought, and eventually Packer was able to hit Bell in the head, which caused him to die. Once Shannon Bell was dead, Packer began to butcher him. He ate what he could and packed up the remainder of his flesh for what remained of the journey. He also took the entirety of the money they had taken from Swan. He then set on his way, thinking that there was no chance he would ever make it out alive. To his shock, he saw the Los Pinos Indian Agency. In order to alleviate suspicion, he threw the remaining flesh onto the ground for animals to eat. He said to the men that he did this with a huge amount of hesitation, not because he didn't want the meat to go to waste, but because at this point he had grown quite fond of it. He would later be quoted as saying the meat near the chest area was the most delicious. His official confession was written as follows. Old Man Swan died first and was eaten by the other five persons. About ten days out from camp, four or five days afterwards, Humphrey died and was also eaten. He had about $133. I found the pocketbook and took the money. Sometime afterwards, while I was carrying wood, the butcher was killed, as the other two told me accidentally, and he was eaten. Bell shot California with Swan's gun, and I killed Bell, shot him, covered up the remains, and took a large piece along. Then I traveled 14 days into the agency. Bell wanted to kill me, struck me with his rifle, struck a tree and broke his gun. I, A.G. Packer, do solemnly swear that the above statement is true and nothing but the truth, so help me God. A.G. Packer, sworn and subscribed before me on this 8th day of May, A.D. 1874. 
Upon hearing his confession, Lautzenheiser shot up with anger, threatening to kill Packer himself. General Adams declared that the five remaining men, as well as some of the officers, should form a search party so that they could find the bodies themselves. The five men immediately thought this story was absolute bullshit. And my takeaway from this that I wonder, and I want, I want to know if you agree, these men, they mostly got along with each other except for Packer. So like no one really seemed to like him. So I'm not a prospector, nor am I a cannibal. But wouldn't you eat the guy everyone disliked the most first? I absolutely. Yeah, 100%. They there's no way when the rest of them seem to speak quite fondly and, you know, kindly of each other, they knew enough about each other that they could say for certain things, you know, like, no, they would never have given away their prized possessions and things like that. And every single one of them that was left all said that Packer was an absolute thief, liar, and a pain in the ass. They absolutely would have eaten him first if it came to that. General Adams approached the two Ute tribe members and asked if they knew of any places similar to those Packer had described while talking about what had happened. They said they did, and it wasn't more than 50 miles away from the settlement. Herman Lauder, Lautzenheiser, a few officers, and the five remaining men agreed that they would go on the search for the bodies with Packer as their guide. After two full weeks of travel, Packer claimed that he was lost and he couldn't remember where the men died. Lautzenheiser suggested that they just hurry up and hang him then and there because he was clearly a liar and a cold-blooded murderer. The other men tried to remain reasonable, but any shred of belief that they had regarding Packer's innocence was shattered when they heard... Whoa. Whoa, that's crazy. I didn't know that. <laughs> I, was, I, was like, I, was, I was like, where is this going? Okay, damn. Okay. Red Dead Redemption. Yeah, Fucking seriously. Absolutely. <laughs> the whole time I'm like visualizing it in my head, it has the same like art style as the game. Yes. Oh my God. Okay. <laughs> oh my God. Okay. The other men tried to remain reasonable, but any shred of belief that they had regarding Packer's innocence was shattered when they saw him pull a knife out of his jacket and attempt to kill Herman Lauder. This was completely unprovoked, and it showed to them that this man was just pure evil. They arrested him and took him back to the town where he was jailed. That following August, a man named John A. Randolph was unlucky enough to stumble upon what was left of the men. He was an illustrator for Harper's Weekly magazine, and his illustrations of the scene would find their way into true crime history. All five bodies were found in a place called Slumgullion Pass, which was near Lake City, Colorado. They were found close enough where they theoretically could have easily found their way back to civilization— However, with Packer as their guide, that would never happen. Randolph made his sketch and set out to town to report what he had found. Law enforcement and a coroner went out to investigate, along with 20 other men. They found all five men in various states of decomposition. At first, they thought that maybe animals had been the cause of the carnage they encountered, but the more they studied the scene, the less it made sense. Frank Miller was completely missing his head. George Noon and James Humphrey had been flayed apart, but their faces were untouched other than what appeared to be wounds caused by blows to the head. 
Shannon Bell was flayed as well, except for his hands and feet. And I know we've talked about stuff like this in the past, but just for anyone listening who's not sure what being flayed means, it means you've had your skin removed. Yep, animals wouldn't do that. No. And they also knew this couldn't have been done by any animal because the men still had all of their organs. It was only the flesh that was missing. Near the bodies, they found a poorly made shelter where it appeared to them that Packer had stayed for a time afterwards. The original theory was that Packer had killed the men and was unable to leave the shelter he made due to a blizzard. He survived by eating the men over time. The officials buried the men and set out to confront Packer. But when they did, he was gone. It's believed that many locals had taken issue with the fact that it had been months and they had no actual proof of Packer's crimes. They were upset about their tax money being used to house a man that they couldn't confirm was guilty or not. It's thought that someone slipped him a key, which allowed him to escape, which... Oh my, can you imagine? Like, they think this guy has no reason being jailed and they then he escapes and they're like, oh, well. And then the guys come back with proof and he's just gone. So this, I'm going to remind you, was in 1874. A part of me certainly hopes that he wasn't slipped a key in order to fully escape, but that he was slipped a key and then someone got him themselves. And they were just like, oh, yeah, I don't know. He escaped, man. (laughs) Right. And you know what the thing is, is I think back then they were like, if he was guilty, we would just hang him. So he can't be guilty. I guess so. I mean... Credit where credit's due to law enforcement doing their due diligence and actually investigating. But unfortunately, in this particular case, it took too damn long. Packer was not found until March 11th, 1883, nine years later. A man named Jean Frenchy Cabazon found him all the way in Wyoming, living under the name John Schwartz. Cabazon had been one of the men who joined the team and stayed behind with Chief Ure. He happened to know the real John Schwartz, and this clearly wasn't him. He reported him to the sheriff, and Packer was quickly arrested and brought back to General Adams. When asked why he fled, Packer explained he was scared about mob justice. Sorry, I just realized my chair was a hell of a lot closer to the mic than when I started, so I'm just moving back. Okay. (laughs) Packer gave his second confession on March 16th. It reads as follows. I, Alfred Packer, desire to make true and voluntary statement in regard to the occurrences in southern Colorado during the winter of 1873 to 1874. I wish to make it to General Adams because I have made one once before about the same matter. When we left Ure's camp, we had about seven days of food for one man. We traveled two or three days and it came a storm. We came to a mountain, crossed a gulch, and then came on to another mountain, found the snow so deep, had to follow the mountain on top, and on about the fourth day, we had about a pint of flour left. We followed the mountain until we came to the main range. Do not remember how many days we were traveling here, about 10 days, living on rosebuds and pine gum, and some men were crying and praying. Then we came over the main range. We camped twice on a stream which runs into a big lake, the second time just above the lake. The next morning, we crossed the lake, cut holes into the ice to catch fish. There were no fish, so we tried to catch snails. The ice was thin, so some broke through. We crossed the lake and went into a grove of timber, all the men crying, and one of them was angry. 
Swan asked me to go up and find out whether I could see something from the mountains. I took the gun and went up the hill, found a gulch and came onto another mountain, found a big rose bush with buds sticking through the snow, but could see nothing but snow all around. I was kind of a guide for them, but I did not know the mountains from that side. When I came back to camp after being gone nearly all day, I found the red-headed man who acted crazy in the morning sitting near the fire, roasting a piece of meat which he had cut out of the leg of the German butcher. The latter's body was lying the furthest off from the fire down the stream. His skull was crushed in with a hatchet. The other three men were lying near the fire. They were cut in the forehead with the hatchet. Some had two, some three cuts. I came within a rod of the fire. When the man saw me, he got up with his hatchet towards me. When I shot him sideways through the belly, he fell on his face. The hatchet fell forwards. I grabbed it and hit him on top of the head. I camped that night at the fire, sat up all night. The next morning, I followed my tracks up the mountain, but I couldn't make it. The snow was too deep and I came back. I went sideways into a piece of pine timber, set up two sticks and covered it with pine boughs, and then made a shelter about three feet high. This was my camp until I came out. I went back to the fire, covered the men up, and fetched to the camp the piece of meat that was near the fire. I made a new fire near my camp and cooked the piece of meat and ate it. Can I just say, I mean, this is quite a long confession, uh, as we're seeing so far, and it's, it's not even half over. He's already lying again because there's no way I believe this story one bit. He's a fucking liar. You could tell me at this point he said my name is Alfred Packer and I'm going to be like, liar. No kidding. In fact, I'm doubting anything at this point except that we know he's a fucking liar. That's really the only truth to the oh, story. Oh, man. Continue, please. I tried to get away every day but could not, so I lived off the flesh of these men. The bigger part of the 60 days I was out. Then the snow began to have a crust and I started up the creek to a place where a big slide seemed to come down the mountain of yellowish clay. There I started to get up, but my feet got wet and having only pieces of blanket around them, I froze my feet under the toes and I camped out before I reached the top of the hill, making a fire on top of a log. You know what this reminds hmm. me of? When you're lying and you add too much to the story. That's exactly it. There's too much detail. And on two logs close together, I camped there. I cooked some of the flesh and carried it with me for food. I carried one blanket. There was $70 amongst the men. I fetched it out with me and one gun. The red-headed man had a $50 bill in his pocket and all the others together only had $20. I had $20 myself. That's a lie. He'd had no exactly. money. If there was any more money in the outfit, I did not know of it and it remains there. At the last camp, just before I reached the agency, I ate my last piece of meat. This meat I cooked at the camp before I started out, and I put it into a bag and carried the bag with me. I could not eat but little at a time. When I went out with the party to search for the bodies, we came to the mountains overlooking the stream, but I did not take them any further. I did not want to go back to the camp myself. If I had stood in that vicinity longer, I would have taken you, Mr. Adams, right to the place. But they advised me to go away. When I was at the sheriff in Sagawachi, I was passed a key made out of a penknife blade with which I could unlock the irons. I went to the Arkansas and I worked all summer for John Gill, 18 miles below Pueblo. Then I rented Gilbert's ranch still further down, put in a crop of corn, sold it to John Gill, and went to Arizona, state of Colorado County. 
I, Al Packer, of my own free will and voluntarily do swear that the above statement is true, the whole truth and nothing but the truth, so help me God. Again, it's like the first confession, but just he's elaborated a little more, but it's all bullshit. Well, he's had nine years to come up with a story. Do we ever find out what actually happened? I'm assuming we don't because he's the only Mm. survivor of the actual incident. Maybe. We'll have to wait and see. Okay, I won't speculate too much then. When it was questioned as to why he just didn't tell this story the first time around, Packer exclaimed, I was excited. I wanted to say something, and the story, as I told it, came first to my mind. It was assumed by many at the time that the reason Packer had joined the men to begin with was so he could lead them into the wilderness, kill them, and rob them. After all, he was the only one who didn't have anything with him to begin with. For starters, the family of Israel Swan explained that this had to be the case. Swan had left with a huge amount of cash and gold, close to $160,000 in today's money. They stated that the other men could have possibly been a part of the scheme to murder and rob Swan, or they could have just simply been witnesses who were killed so they couldn't talk afterwards. The trial of Alfred Packer was set to begin on April 6th. He pled not guilty. It was determined that Swan's remains show that he fought for his life while the other men appeared to have been killed in their sleep. After a week-long series of witness testimonies and examinations, he was found guilty of the premeditated murder of Israel Swan. His punishment would be to hang until he was dead. Now, I found two different quotes from the judge regarding this. Uh, The first one's a little long, but the court records indicate his statement to read... It becomes my duty as the judge of this court to enforce the verdict of the jury rendered in your case and impose on you the judgment which the law fixes as the punishment of the crime you have committed. It is a solemn, painful duty to perform. I would to God the cup might pass from me. You have had a fair and impartial trial. You have been faithfully and earnestly defended by able counsel. The presiding judge of this course, upon his oath and hid conscience, has labored to be honest and impartial in the trial of your case, and in all doubtful questions presented you have had the benefit of the doubt. A jury of twelve honest citizens of the county have set in judgment on your case upon their oaths they find you guilty of willful and premeditated murder, a murder revolting in all its details." In 1874, you, in company with five companions, passed through this beautiful mountain valley where stands the town of Lake City. At this time, the hand of man had not marred the beauties of nature. The picture was fresh from the hand of the great artist who created it. You and your companions camped at the banks of a stream as pure and beautiful as ever traced by the finger of God upon the bosom of the earth. Your every surrounding was calculated to oppress upon your heart and nature the omnipotence of deity and the helplessness of your own feeble life. In this goodly favored spot, you conceived your murderous designs. I really like this. He's going in on him. Right? With the fear of God in him. He re- I mean, he's really, really marching <laughs> up that tree. You and your victims had had a weary march, and when the shadow of the mountains fell upon your little party and night drew her sable curtain around you, your unsuspecting victims laid down the ground and were soon lost in the sleep of the weary. 
when thus sweetly unconscious of danger from any quarter, and particularly from you, their trusted companion, you cruelly and brutally slew them all. Whether your murderous hand was guided by the misty light of the moon or the flickering blaze of the campfire, you can only tell. No eye saw the bloody deed performed, no ear save your own caught the groans of your dying victims. You then and there robbed the living of life, and then robbed the dead of the reward of honest toil which they had accumulated, at least so say the jury. To the other sickening details of your crime I will not refer. Silence is kindness. I do not say these things to harrow your soul, for I know you have drunk the cup of bitterness to its very dregs. And wherever you have gone, the sting of your conscience and the goadings of remorse have an avenging nemesis which have followed you at every turn in life and painted afresh for your contemplation the picture of the past. (laughs) I like it. It's very, like, biblical. (laughs) I say these things to impress upon your mind the awful solemnity of your situation and the impending doom which you cannot avert. Be not deceived, God is not mocked, for whatsoever a man soweth, he shall also reap. You, Alfred Packer, sowed the wind. You must now reap the whirlwind. Society cannot forgive you for the crime you have committed. It enforces the old Masonic law of a life for a life, and your life must be taken as the penalty of your crime. I am but the instrument of society to impose the punishment which the law provides. Will society cannot forgive, it will forget. Oh my god, we still going. Okay. As the days come and go, the story of your crimes will fade from the memory of men. With God, it is different. He will not forget, but he will forgive. He pardoned the dying thief on the cross. He is the same God today as then, a God of love and mercy, of long-suffering and for kind forbearance, a God who tempers the wind to the shorn lamb and promises rest to all the weary and heartbroken children of men, and it is this God I commend you. Close up your ears to the blandishments of hope. Listen not to its flattering promises of life, but prepare for the dread certainty of death. Prepare to meet thy God, Prepare to meet that aged father and mother of whom you have spoken and who still love their dear boy. For nine long years you have been a wanderer upon the face of the earth, bowed and broken in spirit, no home, no loves, no ties to bind you to earth. You have been indeed a poor, pitiable waif of humanity. I hope and pray that in the spirit land to which you are so fast and surely drifting, that you will find peace and rest your weary spirit for which this world cannot give. Alfred Packer, the judgment of this court is that you be removed from hence to the jail of Hinsdale County, and there be confined until the 19th day of May, A.D. 1883, and that on said 19th day of May 1883, you be taken from thence by the sheriff of Hinsdale County to a place of execution prepared for this purpose, at some point within the corporate limits of the town of Lake City in the said county of Hinsdale, between the hours of 10 a.m. and 3 p.m. of said day, you then and there, by the said sheriff, be hung by the neck until you are dead, 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 and may God have mercy upon your soul. Ooh. 
he was getting paid by the minute. Yeah, he 100% was. Paid by the minute, paid by the word. Right? He's like, this is my moment. There might be scouts in the audience. I gotta look Not good. to go off, I'm gonna go off on a teeny tangent. For those of you have, that have seen uh, the Moby Dick movie, the black and white one with Gregory Peck as Captain Ahab, I have been forced to sit through it many times because it's one of my dad's favorites. There's a scene in the very beginning where this preacher is giving a sermon and the actor that performs it is fantastic, but he speaks for like five minutes straight and there is no cuts, nothing. He just goes straight off. And I feel like him and that judge were having words. (laughs) (laughs) So the funny thing to me about this all is Harry Dolan, who was at the trial, stated that the judge loudly exclaimed, this instead and charlotte's gonna read it exactly as it was bearing in mind the tirade i just went on the biblical biblical (laughs) tirade okay i'm gonna say it exactly as it's written down stand up you voracious man-eating son of a bitch and receive your sentence when you came to hinsdale county there was seven democrats but you you at five of them goddamn you <laughs> i sentence you to be hanged by the neck until you're dead 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 as a warning sign again reducing the democratic population of this county packer you republican cannibal i would sentence you to hell but the statutes forbid it <laughs> Oh my god, I am in love with both sides of this coin, I tell you what. (laughs) Those are two very different men, aren't they? (laughs) I am here for both. So Alfred Packer, when all of this was said and done, was spared from his death sentence thanks to a technicality. Oh my god, we went through all that and he was spared? (laughs) Oh, Lord have mercy. That judge must have been pissed. So it was found that in 1874, murder statues in the state were replaced by a savings clause. The technicality was that he couldn't be sentenced by the state because when the crimes happened, Colorado was not yet technically a state. It was a territory. Are you fucking joking? (laughs) (laughs) Oh my god. A second trial was conducted. It was decided that due to what they considered the prejudices against Packer and his now nefarious reputation, that he could not get a fair trial. But this did not stop him from being found guilty on June 8th, 1886, of five counts of voluntary manslaughter. He was sentenced the maximum amount of time possible, which was the longest sentence in U.S. history at the time. He was set to serve 40 years in prison, eight for each man that he killed. And I thought about this and I was like, 40 isn't that long. And I thought about it and I was like, they would have just hanged like the majority of people who were even like remotely related to doing something Absolutely. like this. He's a very much an outlier in this particular case. And it's one of these stories where it's like, man, evil people really do get away with it sometimes, huh? You know, an interesting note is that local hunters, they made statements that confirmed they found deer carcasses near the ill-fated campsite. So that proved that wildlife wasn't as uncommon as he claimed. And maybe, just maybe, he didn't have to eat the other men. The coroner never took the stand or was really questioned at all, while Preston Nutter was. He showed illustrations he had made of the discovery of the bodies, which shocked everybody in the courtroom. No one with any experience in criminal investigations actually testified. 
And we also want to point out that none of those speaking about his crimes had actually witnessed what happened. Packer himself took the stand at one point. He said he was fine with the 40-year sentence, but wanted it known that he was only willing to serve it for the murder of Shannon Bell, the only man that he claimed to kill. This request was denied, and he was sent to the Canyon City Penitentiary. We thought we'd share with you an excerpt from the New York Tribune. This article was published on Saturday, August 7th, 1886. The trial of Alfred Packer for murder and cannibalism, which was conducted at Gunnison yesterday, was one of the most remarkable cases known. The last day he testified in his own defense. He looked pale. His cheeks were hollow and his eyes sunken. He stood up during the entire statement, which occupied two and a half hours. At times, he became excited and emphasized his narrative with gestures and not infrequently with oaths until restrained by his attorney. As told by the defendant, no story could be more horrible than the bare recital of how he and his five companions wandered aimlessly about the mountain without food, raving mad with hunger, eating their moccasins, willow buds, rosebuds, and then finally devouring each other. Other papers from around that time bore dramatic titles such as The Colorado Ghoul and Packer Packed, the National Republican called him a man of middle age and repulsive countenance. <laughs> I've said it before and I will say it again and again. I love old-timey newspaper oh, reporting. There's nothing quite like it. In the following years, he applied for five different appeals. All were denied. He attempted to argue that he was tried by an unfair and unjust system that had it out for him. On February 8th, 1901, 18 years into his sentence, Packer was officially paroled. This was in part due to the writing of Polly Pry, a reporter for the Denver Post. Polly met him while she was working on an article about the prison. She had written to Packer both during the trial and afterwards and petitioned for his release. In her writing, she said that his story was over-sensationalized, which had led to an unfair and biased trial. She talked about his service in the army and painted him not as a bloodthirsty murderer, but as a man who did what he had to do to survive. Believe it or not, people actually agreed with her. When Packer was paroled, it was stressed that he was not being pardoned for his crimes and that he would not be allowed to profit off of his story in any way. Another person responsible for his release was an old-time friend of his named Dwayne Hatch. To him, he wrote a third and, thankfully, final confession. This is a long one. Oh, my God. Okay. <clears throat> Mr. D.C. Hatch, 842 Larimer Street, Denver, Colorado. My kind friend, your welcome favor of the 22nd Institution has been received. And in reply to your request, I gladly comply by giving to you as complete a statement as it is possible for me to. In the fall of 1873, a party of men left Salt Lake City, there being teams and pack animals. In leaving, we were deficient in supplies for the entire journey. But this matter can hardly be attributed to myself or anyone else of the party of 21, for the agreement was that the men who owned the teams were to furnish our sustenance. But unfortunately, our supplies were exhausted by the time we reached the Green River at the head of Colorado. And now, my kind friend, let me oppress upon you the painful fact that thus early in our journey, we were suffering most terrible from the pangs of hunger. 
For about five days, we had been surviving off horse feed, which was chopped barley. Just at this point, we, Ure, and a band of 50 Indians, from whom we received assistance, and being informed by Chief Ure that the mountains were impassable owing to the great amount of snow, we availed ourselves of his invitation and camped within two miles of him, and from whom we purchased supplies. After being in this camp for about one week, a man by the name of Lutzenheiser and four other men started for the agency, having been informed by Chief Ure that from his camp to the Indian agency was 40 miles, while in fact, by airline, it was 80 miles. Lutzenheiser and his party had no other provisions, only what each man carried, they being on foot. As a result, their provisions soon became exhausted, and these five men had concluded to cast lot to see who should be food for the others. But just at this time, a coyote was seen, which was immediately killed and was the means of saving one of the party from a tragical fate. And as this party neared the cattle camp where Gunnison now stands, Lutzenheiser saw a cow fast in the snow and he crawled up to her and shot her with his revolver. The man who had charge of the cattle happened to be out looking for his herd, saw the tracks with Lutzenheiser had left, and following these tracks, he soon find Lutzenheiser in an exhausted condition. He took him into this camp and followed his trail back and found the remaining four of the party, who he also took into the camp, a man by the name of George Driver being the last who was carrying the head of the coyote. Here they remained under they became physically recruited when they started for the Los Pinos Agency, which was 40 miles into the mountains, at which place they were picked up again in a fainting condition, all of which was sworn to at the time of my trial and is a matter of court record. And now I return to my own party, which composed of six men, myself included, there being two trails to the agency, one about a week after Lutzenheiser's party left. We took the upper trail for the purpose of reaching the same destination. We were also on foot and carried what provisions we could in blankets. After nine days, our provisions were entirely exhausted. The snow being deep, we were compelled to keep on top of the divide in order to travel at all. And these divides led to the top of the Rocky Mountains. Our matches had all been used and we were carrying our fire in an old coffee pot. Oh, that explains the coffee pot. There we go. I like it. Okay. Hey, at least we got one mystery solved here. Three or four days after our provisions were all consumed, we took our moccasins, which were made of raw hide, and cooked them, and of course ate them. Our suffering at this time was most intense, such in fact that the inexperienced cannot imagine. We could not retrace our steps for the trail was entirely drifted over. In places, the snow had been blown away from patches of wild rose bushes, and we were gathering the buds from these bushes, stewing them, and then eating them. In following these divides, we soon gained the tip of the Rocky Mountains, and the snow being blown away from the top of the mountains, and our feet encased in pieces of blankets, we were enabling to travel along steadily. Now, my friend, you can imagine our condition on top of the mountains with nothing to kill for food and not even any of those rose bushes. Starvation had fastened its deathly talons upon us and was slowly but most torturously driving us into the state of imbecility. In fact, Bell, the strongest and most able-bodied man of our party, had succumbed to the power of mental derangement and was causing the party to be very much afraid of him, as well as that which they felt to be the inevitable doom of each mentally. I am at a loss to fully express our feelings at this stage, but we consulted each other and conclude to come down the mountain. 
for we could not tell whether we had passed the agency or not, for it was snowing or blowing constantly. And just as it happened, we descended into the lake fork of the Gunnison River. We camped one night just above the lake. In the morning, I ascended to the mountain for the purpose of ascertaining if there were any visible signs of civilization on the opposite side. The snow being very deep, it required the entire day to make this trip and return. As I neared the camp on my return, I was confronted by a terrible sight. As I came near, I saw no one but Bell. I spoke to him, and then with the look of a terrible maniac, his eyes glaring and burning fearfully, he grabbed the hatchet and started for me, whereupon I raised my Winchester and shot him. The report from the rifle did not arouse the camp, so I hastened around the campfire and found my comrades dead. Can you imagine my situation? My companions dead and I left alone, surrounded by the midnight horrors of starvation as well as those of utter isolation? This is a lot for a guy who we don't know if he could spell his name. No kidding. I'm actually, like, did he dictate to someone or... So this was apparently a letter that he wrote, and this is like the reported letter that he wrote to the guy who helped him get paroled. I almost wonder, this could be completely the true, 100% how he wrote it, but I almost wonder how much was sort of jazzed up for the papers and such. I agree, because again, Alfred, Alfred, he didn't know how would we, how would he know to write this? And he seems like a pretty sketchy dude in the, you know, and in those days, like, it doesn't really mention anything about him going to school or anything. There's a very large possibility he couldn't read. This reads like the judge wrote it. A little bit, yeah. And considering (laughs) what we also know of what the judge might have actually said. I don't trust any of these people. No kidding. All right, back to it. My body weak, my mind acted upon such an awful manner that the greatest wonder is that I ever returned to a rational condition. In looking about, I saw a piece of flesh on the fire which Bell had cut from Miller's leg. I took this flesh and lay it to one side, after which I covered the bodies of my dead comrades. I remained here with them during the night. In the morning, I moved about a thousand yards below where there was a grove of pine trees. I distinctly remember of taking a piece of the flesh and boiling it in a tin cup. I also know that I became sick and suffered most terribly. My mind at this period failed me, but I am satisfied that I must have eaten some of the flesh, but my mind was a total blank for a considerable period of time. When my mind returned, I found by my tracks that I had been visiting around the adjacent territory seeking rosebuds, which I apparently found, for I noticed that by force of habit I had been stewing them in my tin cup. The record of time now becomes a non-entity. I do not know how long I remained there. I did not know how near I was to the close of the year. I couldn't tell how near spring was. But the weather began to moderate and I wandered around seeking rosebuds for food when all of a sudden I was confronted by the Los Pinos agency. Which isn't what happened. Again, he walked exactly. into the It would be a mild assertion for me to say that I was surprised, and most agreeable it was too. I found that in my searching for food and civilization, I had traveled 40 miles from the Lake Fork to the Gunnison. For three weeks, I was taken care of at the agency. I've learned that Lutzenheiser and his party had crossed the mountains into Sea-Watch. The remaining of the 21 men, now at the end of the three weeks, came through with a band of Indians. They questioned me as to where my comrades were. I replied that I killed Bell and that evidently he had killed the others. In a day or two, we left the agency and started with the teams to go over to Sea Watch. 
We remained in Sea Watch until General Adams, the agent, returned from Denver. I then explained to the general all I knew about my dead comrades, and an expedition was fitted out to return and bury them. We had not gone far on this journey before we were compelled to turn back to the agency, owing to the great depth of snow and crust which it was upon. After returning to the agency, I was turned over to the sheriff of Sea Watch, with whom I remained until the middle of July. And there's another lie because there's reports of him saying that he wouldn't take them further because he said he was lost. At this time, the sheriff, Amos Wall, asked me if I could realize what I had passed through. In reply, I gave him as complete an explanation as I could, after which he told me to go away and not permit it to worry me. (laughs) Get lost. (laughs) Mm -hmm. Yeah, don't worry about it. You're fine. I did as I was advised, so far as going away, and after the lapse of 10 years, I was arrested in 1885 upon the charges of having murdered my companions. He doesn't say he was in jail and he broke out. He says the sheriff was like, buddy, don't worry about it. Yeah, no. (laughs) We know what the sheriff was like. The sheriff wanted to see him hanged just as much as anybody else. I don't think the sheriff was like, yeah, get out of here, you scamp. Oh, you little scallywag, you're fine. (laughs) The result of my trial is well known to all, how the Supreme Court granted me a new trial, and how I was convicted of manslaughter upon five different indictments tried by one and the same jury, receiving an accumulative sentence of 40 years, being eight years for each. Now, my kind friend, in conclusion, permit me to say that I am today, as ever before, a member of the human family, although isolated and away from that which is dear to the heart of every man. Am I the villainous wretch which some have asserted me to be? No man can be more heartily sorry for the acts of 24 years ago than I. I am more a victim of circumstance than of atrocious design. No human being living could say that I, in cold blood, with evil intent, murdered my companions upon that awful occasion. What could be the object of my taking their lives in such a wanton manner? I bear no malice towards living man, even though I may feel that I have been unjustly dealt with. Still, that supremacy which rules over all of us knows that I forgive as I wish to be forgiven. In this, the darkest hour of my earthly existence, I feel, as I long felt, that I would have far better off had my execution taken place years ago, and I might now be with those companions who ghosts, I assure you, do not haunt me, for the soul has existence beyond this mortal life. Each and every one of those unfortunate men knows that I'm innocent. As it is, there is some unexplainable power which refrains my hand from freeing my soul. Hence all the brightness in the firmament of my earthly future is centered in the hope that I may eventually be given an opportunity of proving to the world that I am less black than has been painted. And to all of my kind friends, I can but reiterate that my heart today, as before, abounds with thankful gratitude for your many expressions of goodwill. I should like to be set at liberty under the banner of a pardon. But if that should not be deemed best, I would gladly avail myself of the opportunity that a commute would give of showing that I came into existence under circumstances similar to that of others and that I still possess a desire to live and do right. Oh, my friend, were it not for the flame of hope which forever burns within the human heart, life would certainly be beyond existence. Gratefully yours, Alfred Oh my goodness, these men sure like to go on and on and on. But what I read that as was, I'm not guilty, but if I did do it, which I didn't, but if I did do it, Who could blame me? It's not my fault, but I didn't do it. But if I did. (laughs) 
If I did, I did it because I was hungry, okay? And I don't deserve this. And also, like, why did I go through another trial? The sheriff let me go. Meanwhile, the sheriff's like, stop talking shit, Alfred. Uh, the sheriff's just like, we should have fucking hung Honestly, him. it would have been a lot quicker. <laughs> He would have said that entire speech as he had the noose around his neck to just, like, stop them from hanging him right away, just, like, buying as much time no as possible. No kidding. Huh. Alfred Packer died at the age of 65. His official cause of death was listed as dementia, trouble, and worry, although it is likely that he had suffered a stroke. It seems that towards the end of his life, he had a very different reputation than those who knew him during his younger years. He was reported to be well-liked and a wonderful storyteller, which I'm seeing mm-hmm. it's he's telling quite a story. Many accounts also state that he was a long-time vegetarian. I feel like we're, you know, doth the lady protest too much? It's like, no, I wasn't a cannibal. I'm a vegetarian. I would never. I wouldn't eat a man. I wouldn't even eat a cow. <laughs> Despite his very selfish reputation, he was known to be a super charitable guy and a friendly man near the end. It is also rumored that his last words were, I am not guilty of the charge. This makes me wonder, like, did he have like a more intelligent twin brother or something that we don't know about? I feel like, although we have a remarkable amount of information thanks to the newspapers and everything and the recordings and the letters of his confessions and all this stuff, I feel like the true, true story has gotten very muddled over time. No thanks to Alfred himself, of course. I wonder if the truth is honestly somewhere in between all of this. It must be, because really, like, it's like we're talking about two different people. I will say, for a sec there, when they started to say, like, a lot of people weren't really sure why he was in jail based on the fact that they had no evidence, there was a little voice in my head that was like, well, maybe he's not as guilty as he seems. And then he starts talking, and you're like, yeah. Yeah, at the very least, you are full of shit, my guy. He was buried in Littleton, Colorado, with a veteran's tombstone that read Alfred Packer. His grave was cemented over in 1973 to stop potential vandalism. And fun fact, there is a rumor that Ripley's Believe It or Not Museum purchased his skull for $20,000 and would later be sold to a private collector. Such a skull definitely did exist, however, it was never proven to actually belong to him. What actually happened in those snowy mountains? The answer to that question is still unknown. However, on July 17, 1989, 115 years after the events that earned him a spot in grim history, we came very close to an answer. James E. Stars from the George Washington University had the five bodies exhumed. And crazy fact, the area that they were buried in was then the site of a surgeon's home near the end of his driveway. And the bodies were found only 13 inches Whoa, below ground level. that's crazy. Can you imagine you're just doing some driveway renovations and you dig up five old boys? <laughs> right. Stars agreed that there would be really no way to conclude whether or not the men were cannibalized, saying that without a picture of him actually eating the men, there really was no proof. However, they did determine that Packer had most likely killed all of the men himself, quite possibly just for the sole purpose of robbing them. 
The skeletal remains showed signs of blunt force trauma. There were still some fabric fibers attached to their skulls, which indicated that they were probably covered with blankets after being killed. Some of the bones also bore evidence of defensive wounds, which suggested a few of the men had attempted to fight him off. They did have some evidence that pieces of them were then carved off, which could possibly indicate that they were eaten. But again, there was no real way to prove that fully. A later study in 1994 showed that Shannon Bell had been shot twice and that his wallet also had a bullet hole through it. Fragments from that were matched to the gun that Packer had carried with him, which was now in a museum. It has been 151 years since Alfred Packer allegedly committed the crimes that almost cost him his own life. Even today, scholars are unsure of what exactly happened, although the most likely story is that he killed multiple innocent men and then robbed them. We would love to know your theories, dear listeners. So if you have them, email us at thegrimcurriculum at gmail.com to share them because I am very curious. And speaking of curious, Charlotte, what do you think? I think he very likely did kill the men. Based on the fact that he was such an ornery pain in the ass little shit and they still chose to keep him around and not leave a man behind when they very well could have, even just for his health issues alone. That indicates to me that they didn't really have any beef with him, apart from the fact that he was annoying and a little thief. I think if truly they wanted to cannibalize anyone, it would have been him first. And I think he more than likely wanted to rob them and eating them was just to survive. I would certainly not want to be in a court of law accused of any crime during this time period. But in my eyes... All signs point to yes. I I believe Packer did kill the men. I think he ate them too, because after all, this was just a few years after the ill-fated Donner Party had happened. And that's one of my favorite stories of all time. It's going to be one that we cover soon, so don't worry, those of you who are familiar with it. I freaking love that story. But people venturing out into the wilderness and eating each other, it wasn't completely unheard of. And also the fact that he had nothing when they met and thousands upon thousands of dollars when he turned up by himself is sus as Yes, and thousands of dollars in those days was worth a hell of a lot more than it is now. He was walking around with the equivalent of like a house in his pocket. Which for someone that everyone claimed didn't have a penny to scratch his wee booty on, that's a lot of moolah. And he liked to steal. So I mean, again, all signs point to Packer. But the reality of it is that this was so long ago that we're probably never going to actually know the truth. But either way, I hope you all liked this episode. I know it's a lot longer than our normal content, but there were too many juicy, glorious pieces of written history that we just had to share These historic cases, they are the kind of thing that got me into true crime in the first place and getting to cover them, it makes me so happy. For all of you grim OGs out there that have been listening, you'll remember back, was it episode 35, Mr. Pierce, the Australian convict who also cannibalized his fellow escapees? Sometimes you just got to eat people, I guess. Survival, I suppose, but we know that Mr. Packer killed because he wanted to rob not necessarily because he had to eat and then hearing the fact that they found like deer and stuff afterwards too 
I think what it boils down to is he was a thief and he was lazy. We know he was lazy. So he's probably like, do I need to hunt? I could just kill these guys and then I have meat and money. Yep. It was kind of a win-win for him. Do we think Mr. Alfred Packer is innocent? Do we think he's guilty or do we think it's somewhere in between? I I really am looking forward to finding out what people think about this one because, again, it's it's fascinating. And to me, it's hard for me to think that he wasn't guilty because I'm pretty fucking Yeah, convinced. if he wasn't guilty of murder, he was certainly guilty of a lot of other things. All right, dear listeners, it is that time again. We would like to thank our glorious, beautiful, wonderful, grim VIPs and up. And those are the lovely folks who support us on Patreon. Please check us out on there. We're adding new content all the time. We're going to be reworking it. All of uh, the proceeds from that go towards our brand new shining studio that we're working on. And uh, the sooner we get that set up, the sooner you get to see our faces. Exactly. That juicy, juicy video content. So a huge thank you to Mayhem Mudkip, Kevinus Musicus, Brian, Hillary, Judy, Atlantean Jedi, Bob, and Lisa. Y'all are the titty city. Thank you so much for your support. And thank you to everybody else out there across the interwebs, whether you listen, whether you follow us on social media, or whether you're doing all of the above. We appreciate the heck out of you. Without you guys, this wouldn't be nearly as big and as fun as it has been. And we grow a little bit more all the time. So we love you. And the cool thing is, actually, uh, this week was one of our best weeks for new listeners ever. Yeah, we've seen a lot of new folks across pretty much every platform. So hello, welcome. Hi. I honestly, like, it means so much. So if you like this episode, you know this by now, but I'll say it anyway. The best ways to help us are to simply just interact with our content online. So like it, comment it, but also to share it with people who you think might enjoy us. Because if you tell a friend and they tell a friend and they tell a friend, world domination for the Grim Curriculum, it's right around the corner. Thank you all so much for listening. This has been The The Grim Grim Curriculum. And I have a related fact to today's case as well for us. In the 17th century, lovely Europeans would line up with cups and goblets at public executions to collect the blood of the deceased. They believed that the more violent the death, the more medicinal value there was in the blood, which ironically for Mr. Alfred Packer, was used to treat epilepsy. That is fucking fascinating. Thank you. Wow. Bye. Huh. Bye. (laughs)